Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com/CSB1. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Sometimes the most significant discoveries from an experiment are things you could have never anticipated. And sometimes, like in the case of Vincent Felitti, even the experiment itself kind of creeps up on you. Felitti is a physician in San Diego. He's a professor at the University of California, San Diego, and founder of the Department of Preventative Medicine at Kaiser Permanente. About 25 years ago, he was working in a medical program helping people combat obesity. But the program had lots of dropouts. And the dropouts were not people who couldn't lose weight. They were people who were doing great. They were making real progress towards their goals. They were the people who you would have thought would have been excited and would have stayed in the program. But that did not happen. And when these very successful people dropped out, they gained the weight back very, very fast. Felitti couldn't figure out what was going on, so he started asking people questions about their pasts. Were they skinny kids? Were they overweight kids? Did their weight change suddenly at some point? And he realized that a lot of people had not become heavy slowly over time. They had gained weight all at once. Now, a quick warning here. There will be a little talk threaded through this story about sexual abuse. And I remember vividly one woman uh, we had worked up to uh, in the 20s in her life, and she told me that at 23 she was raped and in the year subsequent gained 105 pounds, whereupon she looked down at the carpet and muttered to herself, overweight is overlooked, and that's the way I need to be. Felitti was struck. And soon he began asking lots more participants in the program if they had experienced rape or abuse. And was floored by the fact that it seemed every other patient in the program that I was asking was acknowledging a history of childhood sexual abuse. And initially I had great difficulty accepting that, you know, I mean, it can't be. You know, I must be doing something wrong. I mean, people would know if this were true. And uh, 186 patients later... It turned out not to be every other patient, but 55%. And the more patients that he and his colleagues asked about this, the more their findings. And remember, this was an experiment they didn't even know they were doing. The more their findings were consistent. Felitti spoke about their work at an obesity conference in 1990, and it didn't go well. Some guy gets up and says, you really need to understand, Dr. Felitti, that People who are more familiar with these matters, like obviously they, recognize that these statements by patients are basically fabrications to provide a cover explanation for failed lives. And I remember standing in front of that very large audience thinking to myself, oh yeah, right, people falsely claim incest histories for social aggrandizement. And I remember thinking, you know, do I tell this wretch what I think of him and probably start a riot here or, or let it go? I, I decided to let it go. But he still cared about the research and he wanted to build on it. He also made a contact at that meeting that would change his life. The doctor who sat next to him at dinner was from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, part of the federal government. 
he told Felitti that his findings could be critically important for the country if they were proven true. There were two basic questions. One, how common are these in a general population? And two, how do they play out over time? So Felitti and his colleagues started surveying patients to ask about a set of adverse childhood experiences, abuse, physical, sexual, or emotional, major neglect, either emotional or physical, and a few other indicators of possible dysfunction, growing up without both biological parents, growing up in a household with an alcoholic, a drug user, someone who's being abused, someone who's chronically depressed or otherwise mentally ill, and growing up with a parent who's in prison. Then this study that had accidentally come into being because of a few stories that shocked a few doctors started yielding a rather amazing large-scale finding. On average, people who scored one or more adverse childhood experiences grew up to become a lot sicker than those who hadn't. Some of that sickness manifested in a way that you might expect. Depression, anxiety, suicidal tendencies, higher drug and alcohol abuse. But it went way beyond that. Here are some of the other problems they saw more of. Heart disease, lung disease, liver disease, diabetes, fractures, cancer, a number of autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, uh, scleroderma, etc. And a major effect on premature death. We found that a person who had experienced any of those six categories uh, in their childhood or adolescence had a uh, shortening of life expectancy of 19.7 years, basically 20-year life shortening. It was just about 20 years ago now that Felitti began publishing those results. And lots of findings on ACE scores, ACE stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences, have appeared since then. Some lawmakers have taken note. They've passed legislation to gather this sort of information and make it available to public services trying to help kids. But Felitti says that the medical community just has not known what to do with ACE scores. They might be too hot to touch, kind of too difficult to tackle, but they're there. And Felitti thinks that both doctors and the public have to confront them. I think the most important thing that could happen with it would be to make a transformative change in primary care medical practice so that issues of causality were routinely sought. I wonder, though, if people are scared both on the front of asking people about things that they consider very private and personal, but also on the front of, I mean, you've taken in some ways sort of these very sensitive topics and turn them into numbers. I wonder if people think, oh, gosh, you know, to reduce abuse to a number that we don't want to like we don't want to go near that. I think the avoidance of this is out of self-concern. I don't know how to talk with people about stuff like that, etc., that kind of thing. So probably the most important thing would be to get across the idea by illustration, by video illustration, of what this looks like in the exam room. And what the examiners worked out was this approach. I see on the questionnaire that. Can you tell me how that's affected you later in your life? And they listened. I see on the questionnaire that you were the one who discovered your father's body when he hanged himself. Can you tell me how that's affected you later in your life? 
I see on the questionnaire that you were sexually molested as a kid. Can you tell me how that's affected you later in your life? And we listened, period, period. And then this mathematician from UCSD comes by and shows in a 130,000-person sample that that somehow triggers a 35% reduction in doctor office visits and an 11% reduction in ER visits the next year compared to the year before for that same group. So hearing this, many people say to me, you know, how do you do that? You, you sent everyone to therapy, right? No, we sent almost no one to therapy. Well, how'd you do that? And then I came to see that the piece that we had overlooked, recognizing, was implicitly accepting. That it was asking, not face-to-face -face initially, that's too difficult. And then following that up in the exam room, I see on the questionnaire that, can you tell me how, and listening and implicitly accepting, yeah, people were people were opening up to yeah. to their doctors. Yeah. Um, so when you think about trying to help people deal with some of these experiences, there must be some patients who have adverse childhood experiences, but maybe somehow avoid getting as sick as other people with many of the same experiences. Have you at all been able to isolate or think about what sort of is there a resilience factor somewhere that helps some people and doesn't help others? Absolutely. The essence of resilience centers on the deeply held recollection and belief that at least once there was someone in one's life who really cared about you, to whom you really mattered. And that could be a teacher. It could be, a, could it be a teacher? Could it be a coach? Teacher, or, a policeman, yeah. a coach. Mm. A a absolutely. Resilience is a very popular subject because it is a good step towards avoidance. Well, I mean, the kid's only two. He's not going to remember this. Kids are resilient. He's going to, you know, he's going to get over this. One of the major researchers in resilience in the United States is a woman named Emmy Werner, W-E-R-N-E-R. On, I believe it's the bottom of page 67 of her book, she makes the <laughs> memorable statement that amongst the most resilient people they had studied, they were unexpectedly surprised to discover the high rate of biomedical disease in that group. These are resilient people, but they've still got serious diseases. Unexpectedly high huh. biomedical disease. When we look at resilience, we look at income, social status, academic success, etc. We do not look at biomedical disease as a marker of resilience or lack thereof. I see. So they might have become a successful lawyer, but that didn't mean that they were able to fend off potentially medical implications of these childhood experiences they had. A absolutely. And mm -hmm. the best example of that that I can think of is an autobiography written by a woman named Mary Elizabeth Bullock. She was extensively molested by her father as a little girl. In addition, he brought her into saloons and sold her to strangers for sex at nighttime. Mm. 
Somehow she does not commit suicide. She does not become a mass murderer. She becomes a United States federal judge. Wow. I mean, that's a big deal. Isn't it wonderful how this woman is so resilient? Mm. The rest of the story, the part that's never looked at, is she has had five different kinds of cancer. Not five relapses, five different kinds of cancer. In 50 years, I have never met a patient with five different kinds of mm. cancer before her. In addition, she has lupus. In addition, she has multiple sclerosis. So the question ultimately comes up, how does this happen? Right. I mean, how the hell do you go from what happens to a little kid, you know, to having cancer 50 years later? Well, our initial thought was, well, you know, I mean, you smoke three packs a day to feel better, of course. And that's true, except that Judge Bullock never smoked. Mm -hmm. The question comes, well, how does one deal with this? The magnitude of the problem is such that it will never meaningfully be dealt with on a person-by-person -person basis after the fact. If anything is going to be done meaningfully, hmm. it's going to have to be done by primary prevention, by figuring out how to prevent this in the first place. No one knows how to do that yet, but it's the right question to focus on. And my best guess currently would be that would involve figuring out how to enable tens of millions of people in this country to become more capable parents, mm. to become more supportive parents. Dr. Vincent Felitti is a clinical professor of medicine at the University of California, San Diego. He's also the founder of the Department of Preventive Medicine for Kaiser Permanente. Thank you so much for your time. You're more than welcome. We've got more on our website about research into adverse childhood experiences and what we know about their effect on health. Plus, we've got info on how the studies are being put to use. That's at innovationhub.org. Vincent Felitti, by the way, thinks that one of the best ways to reach large numbers of parents might be to develop a kind of soap opera that would highlight different sorts of situations that you confront when you're raising a kid and then showcase what supportive parenting looks like. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Mimecast. Nearly 30,000 companies worldwide use Mimecast to help prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, phishing, and impersonation attacks. Mimecast, committed to making email safer for business. Mimecast.com.